Welcome to the Dear Rochester Retire Well Podcast with David Pulsini from Six Point Financial Partners. In this podcast, find your path towards a brighter financial future with David as your guide as he helps individuals, educators, and healthcare professionals explore ways they can build wealth while minimizing risk using a multifaceted, comprehensive approach to personal finance. Are you ready to take the first step towards a brighter financial tomorrow? Let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, I am really excited to bring you one of our own today, Alex Neary. He is going to help us continue our series that is covering the six things that we tell our clients in a certain age group. And today's episode will go over what Alex tells his clients in their 60s. So before we get into that, let me make a quick note here. When these episodes are recorded and released, we email them to our clients. We also send links on different social media platforms. So the reason I say that is I've had a few people reach out to me and say, hey, Dave, I'm in my 60s. Why are you sending me a podcast about planning in my 20s and 30s? And uh, I understand that because it says if you're planning for retirement, in your 20s and 30s and or financial planning and someone's in their 60s, it's going to make no sense. Or my favorite was a, hey, Dave, I'm 31 years old. Don't you dare send me a link to a podcast for planning in my 40s. I love that one. I literally laughed out loud, but just so everybody knows, the reason we send these out, and I say this to our clients, is that they may not all apply to you right now, but they may apply in the future, number one, or they may apply to somebody you know. So for the client in their 60s that we sent the 20s and 30s episode to, I literally said, hey, you have four kids that are in their 20s and 30s, just forward it to them. (laughs) So same thing applies. If you're not in your 60s, it's still important. Also, I think it lets people know what advisors are doing at different points in somebody's life, right? So at some point, hopefully, if you're not in your 60s, hopefully you'll get there. And this may apply at that point. Let's get back to our guest here, Alex Neary. Quick blurb on Alex. Alex started as a financial advisor in 2012. And in my opinion, he was quickly successful. And this is something you do not typically see in our business. But Alex quickly developed systems, processes, and he studied our business. He was the leader in his peer groups consecutively for multiple years in a row. And that really helped him build the foundation to where he is today. So Alex is part of a team that manages hundreds of millions of dollars for their clients. He's a CFP. He's a fiduciary. And I have noticed personally that Alex is constantly looking for ways to get better for himself and most importantly, his clients. I have the pleasure of working with Alex every day, collaborating on projects, picking his brain, and I'm excited to have him today. So Alex, thanks for doing this. I know you're busy. How are you today? I am great, Dave. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be part of the podcast finally. Yeah. <laughs> Rather flattering introduction. So yeah. thanks. Hi. Thanks. I, I worked really hard on that. So <laughs> let me let me let me give you an easy one to start, Alex, and we'll get into the the points, the six points that we tell people, or the six things that we tell people in their 60s. But again, starting with an easy one for you, why is financial planning in somebody's 60s so important? Yeah, that's a good place to start. So I think the reason that I was personally excited to cover this particular decade of someone's life is I think the 60s for most people and everyone's situation is different, represents something of a transition. Meaning that from the day you get your first job into your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, the focus for a lot of the financial plan you're doing is really on the accumulation side. It's how can I save more money? How am I investing that money? What will it grow to? 
And then for a lot of people who typically retire sometime in their 60s, maybe their late 50s if they're lucky, it starts to turn into, okay, I've saved all this money now. What does it mean to me? What am I going to use it for? How am I going to spend it? What's the most efficient way to do that? And there's a number of decisions that go along with that. Primarily things like social security, Medicare, distribution strategies, Roth conversion, some of the things we're going to talk about today. So we'll, we'll get into that. But that's, that's why I think the 60s are the maybe the most important decade for financial planning. Yeah. Well, and for a lot of people, it's like you've saved up a lot of money. By the way, the market has been great over the last few years. So people have really seen their, their retirement accounts and their other accounts if they've invested it really kind of take off. So we just want to make sure it's there. The number one concern I hear for people in their 60s is, Dave, I just don't want to run out of money and I want to make sure it's safe. So, and I know you'll get into that. So let's just get into the points here or the six things you tell your clients and start with number one. Go ahead. Yeah. So I could do these in a number of different orders. Um, so I'll start with social security and I don't have a ton to say about it. Just I know we covered it with two podcast episodes already, but I think the common questions that we get on that are pretty basic. It's when can I take it? How much am I getting? Is there a benefit to waiting? What if I die? What if I'm divorced? There's all kinds of different scenarios with social security. So you really do need to talk to your advisor, talk to somebody that knows what they're talking about. Not necessarily the hearsay that you get from friends and family all the time, because that can be dangerous. But so to answer a couple of those questions, basically, basically, and I won't go too into depth, you can take it as early as age 62. You can wait all the way till age 70. And every year you wait, you do get a little bit of a, we'll call it a raise for doing that. With that, a lot of people ask, well, what's my full retirement age? And I think that's a little bit confusing because it has changed. Um, the easy way to remember it is if you're born 1954 or earlier, your full retirement age is 66. If you're born 1960 or later, your full retirement age is 67. And then anytime between there, it just goes up two months per year. So for example, if somebody was born in 1955, their full retirement age would be 66 and two months. A year later, it would be 66 and four months and so on. That's super boring to talk about, but I think it's important. So <laughs> I wanted to squeeze that in there. Oh, it's good. I the, the episodes that Alex was referring to are episodes six and seven, and it was deep dives into social security. And Alex, I literally read out loud every single year and every single full retirement age. So if people want to really want to check it out, if it's that exciting, they can go back and listen to when theirs is, or, or just a simple internet search will help us find the full retirement age. It's not an exciting topic, but it's important. And we get a lot of questions on it. So definitely understand what your options are with social security. Um, but we'll leave it right there because I know you covered it in depth. Yeah, I'll tell you when we do get excited as advisors is when somebody comes in with a specific thing in mind, right? They might say, oh, I, I'm taking it at 63 and my spouse is taking it at this age. And then I, I really do get excited about this. And when we can find a way that says, why don't we consider this option? And now all of a sudden they're getting $1,000 more per month and they didn't plan on that by some strategy that there's just no way that they would have known because they don't do this all the time. So some of the stuff is boring. That stuff gets me excited. I know it gets Alex excited too. So, but social security point number one, huge one for the sixties. Let's go on to number two. Yeah. So point two is the other, you know, big decision that people make in their sixties is usually around Medicare. So there's not as many choices with Medicare, meaning you don't get to pick when you take it. Um, Medicare, you have to take at 65. There's literally no, well, I don't say literally no option, but there's really no option with it. Um, and the big question we get on that, I think most retirees understand they need to get to age 65, but they want to know like how they actually go about getting on Medicare um, or when they do that. And you generally want to file for Medicare three months before your 65th birthday. 
you know, if you, if you're late on that already and you've only got two months, it's not the end of the world, but it might just change how you can qualify for different supplement plans and things like that. Um, and to the next topic, supplement plans are something we get a lot of questions on. So what is a Medicare supplement plan? And again, this is, I know you have a full episode out there on it and we can talk about it for hours, but what you need to know about supplement plans are Medicare itself does not cover everything you need for healthcare. So they have supplement plans that you can go out there and purchase for an additional premium. And in doing that, hopefully you can cover everything you need. Yeah. So our Medicare podcast, Alex is episode 18 and Catherine gets into exactly when the enrollment periods are, what it covers, how it covers it, how to enroll. And my, my big thing about Medicare is this is another one. I would not try to do it yourself. I'd reach out to a professional that does just Medicare. If that's what they do and they're a person that can help and they can represent all companies, they will pick the best thing for you. So Medicare is obviously a huge one. 65th. Our clients get an email sometimes that are, it's like happy 64th and three quarters birthday. (laughs) So let's, let's start thinking about enrolling for Medicare. Yeah. I think that's definitely a a good reminder for people because a lot of people might just wait until their 65th birthday and go in there and try to claim it and find out that they're a little bit late to the party. Yeah. All right. So, we have Social Security, we have Medicare. What's the next big thing in the 60s that you would consider? Yeah, so the next big question that we get from a lot of people, and it kind of segues nicely from Medicare, is what's the long-term care insurance all about or how does that work? And the reason it's a good segue is just a lot of people ask us, does Medicare cover long-term care? Will it pay for me to you know, go into a nursing home or have somebody come into my house to help me out in the later stages of life? Short answer is no, it does not. Um, so we need to look at another solution to make sure that we're taken care of in that stage of life. Um, long-term care is extremely expensive. It's a big financial decision, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for everybody. It is a specific type of person or specific financial situation that it really fits into nicely. And then there's kind of that gray area where maybe it makes sense, maybe it doesn't, and it's more of a maybe more of a want than a need for clients. And it, it's been something that's shifted a lot over the last probably two decades of just insurance companies trying to figure out what it actually costs to cover this need. And as they figure out what that cost is, it's been honestly a lot higher than they thought it might be. So you're starting to see the premiums for long-term care insurance policies rise pretty quickly. And with that, you've also seen a lot of insurance companies kind of get out of that business. I think if you go back 10 years, I know in New York state, at least there's 10, 15, maybe more companies that were offering long-term care policies. And now I think we're down to, is it one or two days? Maybe you know that, yeah. but it's not a lot. Yeah. Um, I think hey, people, people do ask us about that a lot, right? And one of the things is they'll say is, well, why is this happening? Or why is there my premium going up? I've had a policy for 15 years. How can they do this? That's all built into when you sign the forms for that policy that you bought. And we see it all the time. And I think whoever the actuary was or the person that did not figure out that our general population (laughs) was getting older and there are a ton of people in that age group, by by far the biggest generation, as we know, the baby boomers were, was it 10,000 people a day are turning 65 years old. And those are the people that are going to be needing long-term care. And the fact that that may not have been thought of coupled with health insurance costs going up so quickly it's just a bad combinations for combination for insurance companies. If you're paying $100 a month and they used to guarantee you something, there's just no way they can guarantee that anymore or they'll go out of business. So long-term care is a big one. We also had a 
full Medicaid series on why you may or may not need long-term care insurance in general. But I would think also, Alex, I totally agree. You have to be totally serious about at least looking into it in your 60s if you have not already. No doubt about it. So yeah, I would say you know you might even say that sixties is a little bit late to look at it. It might be better to do in your fifties because by the time you get to your sixties, there's other health things that set in and your premiums might just be higher. Um, and I do want to just make a point of I mentioned before there's only a couple insurance companies that even offer these anymore. I think Anthony Ruffalo on the last episode mentioned the hybrid policies. So there are long-term care insurance options that are not what we call a standalone long-term care policy. Um, there's these insurance hybrid policies that do exist. There's a lot of those out there. So there's an opportunity to get the insurance that you need if it does make sense for, you know, something you want to look at. Yeah, that's a good point too. So, all right, moving on to, I believe we're on number four. I think we are. We're going yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty fast. Not too fast. Though, right? We're doing all right. We're doing all right. Okay, we're good. <laughs> um, so now we get into the, what I think are the more fun points. The first three, social security, Medicare, long-term care insurance. I don't find insurance interesting to talk about but it's important. So there it is. Um, <laughs> point four. So one of the mistakes that we see a lot of people making at retirement, and I don't think it's it's not their fault. It's just kind of the way that people have been trained throughout their financial lives. They know the basics of investing. They're supposed to start out very aggressive in their early years, their 20s, 30s, 40s. They're taking more risk in their portfolio, trying to get a higher rate of return. And by the time they get to their 50s and 60s, they've been kind of coached to think that okay, I'm retiring now. I need to get totally conservative and make sure I don't lose money because I'm starting to spend my retirement funds. And if the market goes down, that can be really bad. And that's true overall. I'm not saying that's wrong. It's definitely important to get more conservative as you get closer to spending your money, whether it's retirement money or anything else. The problem is if we go all the way conservative and you're, you know, you retire at 65, you go all the way conservative, you're in a cash account or a guaranteed account that's returning you know, you'd be lucky in today's world if you're getting 3% on it. The problem with that is that if we do that, we're not growing money for the later years of retirement. So with people living longer and longer, it used to be maybe you retired at 65 and your retirement, you were talking about maybe five or 10 years. In today's world, we know people are living longer. So if you retire at 65, you might need that money to last until you're 95 or even 100 or some people, <laughs> of course, live longer than that even. So we need to make sure we have a bucket of money. I know we've talked about buckets on the podcast before, but a bucket of money that's invested for the long term so that the later years of retirement, you still have money that's growing at a reasonable rate so that we're beating inflation so that we can pay for things that we need down the road. And that even ties into long-term care a little bit. Maybe that you, you, know, you decide that the long-term care insurance policy isn't right for your financial situation, but if you're able to invest some of that money for the later years, it can help out when you do need you know, a nursing service or nursing home care or something like that. Yeah. So the other thing I get is the, I, I think when you said aggressive, I want you to clear this up because I get this question all the time. When you say you're younger, you need to be more aggressive. You kind of, you, you did mention it afterward, but you said about the portfolio. So I think a lot of people to make this even more simple, when an advisor says you need to be aggressive, it could be taken as two ways, right? Most of the normal people that aren't in our business out there that are listening, they say, when you're aggressive, they think of like saving more. I need to aggressively save. I'm only doing 6% of my salary. I need to bump it to 20%. And I'm being aggressive. Two totally different things. Aggressive yeah. means, yeah, the mix of investments you have. So whether you're putting in $10 or 10 million, 
aggressive in the situation that Alex is talking about means the amount that is in stocks versus bonds and other investments. So yeah, exactly. And I guess I, I'll be a little bit more careful with the industry jargon as we'll call it, but <laughs> that's a good clarification. So more aggressive with your investments, more stocks, less bonds. And that would be kind of what we're talking about there. That's right. Sometimes you have to prove that you're smart too, right, Alex? So you're doing all right yeah, with that. Yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. That, you said that was point number four, number five. Yep. So Go point ahead. number five kind of goes along with, you know, everything else we've talked about, but um, a lot of our clients retire and have pensions. I think you're going to see this be less and less of yeah. a you know common thing going forward because really the only people that have pensions at this point that are early in their career, the only people that are getting introduced to pensions are state employees and federal government employees. Very few people in the private sector have them. Um, anyway, a lot of people retiring now do have them. And when you go to retire, one thing a lot of people haven't thought of is just the different options you have when you claim your pension. Um, on the state and federal level, it's typically just whether or not you're going to take a reduction to leave a benefit to somebody else. Um, so what that means is, let's say I have a pension that's worth $100,000. That means that as long as I live, I get $100,000 every single year paid out to me. When I die, my spouse, my children, whoever's left behind gets zero because that's the option I chose. So every pension system or most every pension system is going to have a series of other options. I think New York State gives you like 12 different options but they all kind of follow the same theme. And it's rather than taking $100,000, maybe you take, we'll call it $90,000. And by doing that, it means that your surviving spouse or your children, whoever your beneficiary is, is also entitled to some kind of continuation of your benefit. So really what they're doing there is New York State, the federal government, whoever your employer is, or whoever's sponsoring a plan is charging you $10,000 to leave a benefit to somebody else. Um, and you've probably seen a lot of people have probably seen this strategy out there. If you look up pen max or pension maximization, the idea is that New York state is, or not necessarily New York state, but whoever your employer is, is selling you a life insurance policy for the difference between the hundred thousand dollars you're going to get and the $90,000 that you're being reduced to. So for $10,000 a year, they're guaranteeing that your beneficiary gets something. And depending on your specific situation, and it has a lot to do with your health ratings and everything else. So it's, it's not blanket advice, but it might be beneficial to look at getting a private insurance policy that costs hopefully less than $10,000 a year. Um, and even if it is still $10,000 a year, you would leave yourself a lot more flexibility. And flexibility is always super important in a financial plan because it allows you to obviously change your mind later. And as things change, you can adjust to it. Um, it's very rare that we see someone's financial plan be carried out exactly the way they thought it would. So I'll leave it at that. I know we could we could talk for hours yeah. about different pension options. And maybe the, the one other thing I'll throw in there is we talked about reduction in pensions. Um, sometimes employers also give you the option for a lump sum, which if that applies to you, you probably heard it. Um, but basically, rather than getting, again, $100,000 a year, maybe I can get just for an easy example, a million dollars is a lump sum. They're going to pay it out to me once and it's going to be pre-tax money, similar to your 401k. Um, and people want to know, you know, what's more beneficial. And there's a lot to think about there. And I won't give again, any blanket advice here, but definitely talk to your advisor about that and make sure you make the right decision because it can drastically affect your retirement or your spouse's retirement or even your kid's inheritance, which I know we're not here to talk about, but we actually will talk about that later. <laughs> yeah. you're So Listen, once again, Alex, we have a podcast fully 
covering the pension. It's episode 11, how to make the most of your pension. And we get really in depth on that again as well. So this actually goes back to the beginning when we're talking about why is financial planning so important in the 60s? I think this proves it. When we have an individual episode on every point that you've picked so far, um, yeah. <laughs> these are all, these are all, every one of them is a big deal. So I think that um, sums it up. I think a lot of these things you should be thinking about early in your career, but if you haven't yet, it's not too late to, to adjust. Right. It, it never is, right? You can only go from here forward. So we are on point number six. So we covered the pension. Now, what do you have next? Point number six. So I feel like this is becoming kind of the beaten dead horse of financial planning. It's the Roth conversions. I think maybe for good just, reason for good reason. For good reason. Yeah. I'm not putting it down at all. I think every, this might just be my own perspective as an advisor, but it seems like every advisor out there has put out some kind of video webinar, podcast, white paper, something about Roth conversions. Um, and I guess maybe our listeners can tell us if they've noticed that, or if it's just something I'm noticing as an advisor, um, but Roth conversions are super important. And the reason for that is, well, I guess we should start with what is a Roth conversion. So a Roth conversion is giving you the opportunity to take your pre-tax dollars that you've saved. So your 401k, your traditional IRA, 403b, whatever it is, and you can convert part of it or all of it, but usually part of that into a Roth account which is an after-tax account. So that means you've already paid tax on it. When you take money out of the Roth, you don't have to pay any tax on it. Um, there's some advantages when it comes to RMDs, which we can talk about in a second here. Um, so it's the main advantages of it is you can control when you're paying the taxes. You can hopefully do it in a lower tax bracket. And then I don't want to steal my own thunder, but at the next point, we're going to talk a little bit about how that might help with some inheritance and estate planning things. But yeah, I think it's, it's important. I think everybody needs to know about it at this point. I feel like the information is so far out there. There's a lot of reading you can do. If you, for whatever reason, haven't talked about that with anybody, definitely reach out to your advisor, talk about it because it's, it's a big opportunity in your 60s. Yeah, it's a, it's a big opportunity at any time. There's some sort of tax anomaly. So if your taxes are different in some year, it would be a great opportunity to reach out to somebody that does this just to ask them, hey, does it make sense to do a Roth conversion? And we, we have talked about this before in a tax planning episode, Alex, but the if, if you could, and I mean, it's such a simple question, right? Like if you have an investment, would you, and you can take money out, would you rather pay taxes on it or not pay taxes on it? The answer is typically not. <laughs> um, the other thing is what we typically find as advisors, and I know Alex will agree just based on what he said so far, is that we find people have very large portions of their future income or investments in pre-tax accounts. So We'll go back to Alex talking about a state employee. So let's say that state employee gets $100,000 from a pension every single year, and they have $500,000 in a 403B. When they go to take money out of the 403B or that pension, they have to pay taxes on all of it. There is no way around it, right? So what if tax brackets jump way up? We are not diversified tax-wise. We need to have some after-tax money so that when, when and if, if and when, I should say, tax brackets go up, we have an option to take money out of something else so that we don't get crushed in taxes or we can avoid certain tax brackets. So Roth conversions are always a big deal. I think besides maybe the 20s and 30s, Alex, every age group that we've talked about has talked about Roth conversions so far. Yeah, I think it's big. And I guess I should clarify the reason that I thought was you know applicable to people in their 60s particularly is I guess I would paint a picture of the typical maybe couple we work with where they're both in their mid-60s, they recently retired, their house is paid off, their kids are out of the house. 
they're at a point in their life where they're able to live on less income than maybe they did a decade ago. So of course that means that they're in a lower tax bracket. So it means there's an opportunity to do some conversions and do it at a lower rate. Um, the other thing that I, I guess we need to mention, and maybe this should have been its own point. Well, I guess it'd be the next episode in the seventies, but um, RMDs are required minimum distributions. You're required to start taking money out at age 72, which is new. It used to be 70 and a half. They bumped it back a couple of years ago, but at age 72, you're forced to start to take money out of your pre-tax accounts. So if you're, let's say 62 years old and you've got a million dollars saved in your pre-tax account, it probably will about double in the next decade. So that means that you've got $2 million in a pre-tax account, which means you're probably taking out you know, rough math, maybe $80,000 or so that the government's going to force you to take out. So that means you're taking out $80,000 extra that you maybe don't need on in your 72nd year of life and you're paying tax on that money. So if we can start to pay some of the tax earlier on in your 60s and hopefully lessen the, the tax burden down the road. Yeah. And there's all sorts of other reasons for Roths, social security, income limits and other things. It's like the only thing that doesn't count. So we can get into that later, but, um, those were our six points, Alex, unless you have anything else to go over. I have one other thing I wanted to cover at the end, but it looks like you have something else to add. So I do. So I have a seventh point and I know that we typically try to, as you know, six point financial partners, fit everything into six points neatly really looks nice when you set it up that way. But I felt the seventh point was important and it's something that I've been running into more recently for whatever reason. And I got some speculations on why that might be, but People in their 60s te- seem to be coming to a realization that they might not spend all of their money. And I think it's a result of in their 40s and 50s, starting to think more about retirement, making a push to save more money, which is good. And anybody that did a retirement projection 10 or 15 years ago, if they really got into this stuff and started to think about how much they need to save, they have more money today than they probably planned on needing because the stock market going back to the recession in 2008, 2009 has not totally, but almost done nothing besides go up. So if you were saving at a rate that meant that you needed to save a million dollars by your 65th birthday, you probably saved that rate successfully, but the market's grown more than you expected. So you maybe don't have a million dollars, maybe you have $2 million. That might be an overprojection, but you get the idea. Yeah. <laughs> so now people have you know maybe an extra 500,000, an extra million dollars that they don't need. And it's a great situation to be in. I know not everyone's as fortunate to, to be in that spot. But if you do have extra money, it might be time in your 60s to start to think about how that affects your financial plan. Where do you want that money to go when you die? If it's going to your kids, how are they going to inherit it? How would they want to inherit it? And what I mean by that is if let's flip it around and say that you're inheriting money, um, would you rather inherit pre-tax money, Roth money, non-qualified money? And the answer for most people is they'd rather inherit Roth money that they don't have to pay taxes on. So are the things that we can be doing in your 60s so that when you do ultimately pass away, if you are leaving money to your kids or to any beneficiary, it can be inherited as a Roth or in a you know preferred tax manner. Maybe a non-qualified account makes more sense. You get a step up in cost basis, which I won't get into, but there's a lot to consider there. Um, another thing that changed recently. So I, I mentioned before that they changed the RMD rules from 70 and a half to 72 Along with that same legislation, they changed the what used to be called a stretch IRA. Uh, some of our listeners might have heard the term stretch IRA, but they changed it so it's now a 10-year rule. So a stretch IRA meant that when you inherited money from your parents or whoever, you could stretch that money over your lifetime for the RMDs. 
So you had your entire life expectancy to pull money out slowly, which meant you weren't going to get you know, hammered with taxes. Now there's a 10-year rule in place, which means you have 10 years to spend down that money that you inherited. Um, so what that looks like, let's say that you're you know, an only child and you inherit a million dollars. It's all going to you. Now you have 10 years to take that money out and not necessarily spend it, but you have to pay taxes on it. So if I have a hundred or if I have a million dollars over 10 years, that's roughly going to be about a hundred thousand dollars a year. If the market doesn't grow at all, which it probably will. Um, so that's an extra hundred thousand dollars of income. I need to claim on my tax return, which if you think about typically, you know, when somebody does lose a parent, it's usually in their prime earning years. They're usually in their forties, fifties, maybe sixties when they lose their parent. And they're probably making more money than they ever have before because they're in the prime of their career. And then you slap on an extra $100,000 on top of that. It's going to push them into a higher tax bracket. And that million dollars you inherited probably turns more into 600000 500000 depending on you know, where taxes go in the future. So I don't mean to ramble here, but I think that's really important. And it goes back to what we talked about before and the Roth conversions. If you have money that you're not going to spend, Consider your tax bracket today, consider your tax bracket today versus what your kid's tax bracket might be when they inherit it. And I guess I got to throw a disclaimer on there that I know that you didn't work your entire life to save money to give it to your kids, or at least most people haven't. Um, your desire might not be to necessarily leave much behind, but it might just be the reality of what's going to happen. Um, so think about that, talk about that with your advisor and um, yeah, I don't know. Is there anything else you would add into that, Dave? No, I was going to say if... Uh... I guess if you had to do a seventh point, that's a good one. It's going to drive us crazy. I think we just got to rename our firm Seven Point Financial Partners. And the podcast, right? It's, it's literally called the six things we tell people in their 60s. I guess they get a bonus, right? So, all right, we're going to start wrapping it up here, Alex. If if I'm at work and I'm, I'm just listening to you talk, I'm at work, I'm driving, I'm mowing my lawn, whatever I'm doing while I'm listening to this. If you're working out and listening to this, God bless you, by the way, that would, this would be the worst workout background you've ever had. But um, I'm listening to this. I'm thinking I need help with this. And if it, maybe not today in the future, I, I need to get a hold of an advisor. Here are my hesitations, by the way. I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Number one, you just lose motivation between the time you're, you get out of your car, you walk into the office, and I've now lost motivation to reach out to an advisor. You're not as excited anymore. Um, I get that. The second thing someone might say is I already have an advisor. I'm all set with that. What I would say is, and Alex kind of brought this up is, is that advisor actually going through all of these things with you? And you can go back to our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Eventually we'll do a 70s episode. Although I don't know if we have a lot of listeners in their 70s, but again, at some point they will be there. So I'd want to know what to expect. But is your advisor your quote advisor handling all of these things for you. I don't know. Maybe they are. I hope they are. I hope that everybody is all set. The third thing that I might say, my hesitation would be that I don't have, I don't have an advisor, but it must be very expensive, Alex, for you to go through all of these things, to know what you know. And you know what, man, I don't want to spend my money on this. I'll do this myself. How would you over, how would you overcome that objection? Um, I don't know if I necessarily overcome it. So I guess, you know, we do get that question once in a while, like, you know, how do you get paid? Do I need you? And I mean, the short answer is no, you, you don't need an advisor. If you want to do this on your own, you certainly can. There's unlimited resources on the internet. You can do a Google search and find a lot of this information. Um, it's not all going to be as straightforward or easy to interpret as, you know, as some people want. But if you don't want to work with an advisor, I don't think anyone out there is going to twist your arm into it, or at least nobody that I would consider a 
irreputable advisors and twist your arm into it. Um, so that's, that's a short answer to get more into, you know, why do I need an advisor? If you're somebody that needs an advisor, I think the things that we covered today are a lot of the reasons they're probably things that I would say the general population isn't thinking about. So just to have the guidance in there and, and make sure that you're on track, I think whatever, what we can talk a little bit about how advisors get paid, but whatever they are charging you, I think is easily worth it when you consider the costly mistakes you could make if you make a misstep in your retirement planning. Um, yeah. You know, looking at the list we have, we, we can easily, I don't need to get too into this, but you, you can make some very expensive mistakes. I guess we'll leave it at that. Well, I just, I mentioned one earlier about, and I didn't know I was going to even ask you this, but the social security question, or so that was a real thing. A couple came in, they had their strategy. By the time they left, we had a thousand dollars more per month. That typically for that couple specifically, actually, that is way more than they'll ever pay me. Sure. We made up our fee just on that. And you know what? I might do a whole podcast on why you should have a financial advisor. I think that might make sense. It sounds self-serving, but it's, it's true. And I don't want people to be nervous or hesitant to reach out to us. And then I would say the last objection that I've thought of is I just don't have time for this, Dave. And just so people know, I might say, I don't know if you agree, Alex, but like they might need like three hours. If they came in for a 45 minute meeting, they decide you're a good fit. You decide they're a good fit. There might be another 45 minute meeting to get some statements together, gather some info. Then you're proposing some things. And at that point, I know Alex's process because we work together. It's like you have two, two or three meetings, you're sending statements, you are fully organized. Things may be on one page, you know who your beneficiaries are, everything's all set, and you get all of these things from working with an advisor that Alex has gone through. So I would say if you can stay motivated, if your advisor is not doing these things for you, you now know how much an advisor can cost, or we would, of course, go through that, or they should tell you in a first meeting, and you have three hours to straighten out your financial life or make sure it's in the proper spot. That's the other thing, by the way. I almost want to make a guarantee, which I'm not allowed to do with compliance, right? That's like <laughs> you pick someone off the street and you say that guy's all set. I bet you I could find a loophole in their in their plan. I could find something that they did not take care of every time. I'm sure you could. And uh, <laughs> there used to be that stat out there. I don't even know if this is true. I don't want to be spreading fake news, but there was something about the average person spends more time planning a vacation than they do planning retirement. I don't know if that's definitely true, but it might be. I think it's got to be true, right? I mean, if people, if you're going on a vacation every year and you're spending a few hours, very rarely are people spending hours and hours per year on their financial plan, even yeah. if they're reviewing and whatever, you get it. So Alex, if people wanted to do this or, and I know you've you said reach out to an advisor, but what if somebody wants to get in touch with you to work with you on this stuff? Well, I'd say they're a pretty smart person. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're here to help. If you want to reach out, you can check us out on our website, which I know Dave's probably mentioned a thousand times on this podcast, but it's sixpointfp.com. Um, all of our contact information is on that. You can also find me on LinkedIn. Um, just search Alex Neary or maybe Alexander Neary. I'm not, I think it's Alexander on there. Find my profile, reach out. I'm happy to help um, if people do have questions and we're pretty easy to get a hold of, I think. Yeah, yeah, you should be able to find us. If uh, I th our last guy said, if you have a, if only everybody had a device in their pocket where they could look up Alex Neary, Rochester, yes, New York. If you, um, if you had a magic device that could. Yeah, there you go. So, Alex, <laughs> hey, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. I know you have a lot of stuff to do today. Um, we appreciate it, listeners. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you on the next episode. 
thank you for listening to the Dear Rochester Retire Well podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Six Point Financial Partners. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Content here is for illustrative and educational purposes only. It is not legal, tax, or individualized financial advice, nor is it a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any specific security or engage in any specific trading strategy. Results will vary. Past performance is no indication of future results or success. Market conditions change continuously. This commentary reflects the personal opinions, viewpoints, and analysis of Six Point Financial Partners. It does not necessarily represent those of RFG Advisory, private client services, their clients, or their employees. This commentary should not be regarded as a description of advisory services provided by Six Point Financial Partners or RFG Advisory or performance returns of any client. The views reflected in the commentary are subject to change at any time without notice. Securities offered by registered representatives of private client services, member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services offered by investment advisory representatives of RFG Advisory, a registered investment advisor. Private client services, Six Point Financial Partners, and RFG Advisory are unaffiliated entities. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where RFG Advisory and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. No advisory services may be rendered by RFG Advisory unless a client agreement is in place.